Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Keiko Madison, the author of Forests in Revolutionary France, Conservation, Community, and Conflict, 1669 to 1848. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Hi there, Keiko. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. I'm really, really appreciative of it. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Well, uh, I speak about it a little bit in my preface, or maybe at great length in my preface. But, uh, you know, I grew up in Vermont, and I was always interested in people's relationships with the land. And when I was growing up, we were also kind of in the process of losing our farm. So... I became interested in people's rights of access to other people's properties, I guess, is this kind of sad way of selling that story. But also French was my best foreign language. So when I went to college and then later to graduate school, I wanted to work on um, European history. And so French history is what drew me. And I've stuck with it ever since. In your introduction to the book, Keiko, you point to, and I'm quoting here, the forest's fundamental position in France's economy in the early modern period. So could we start with a bit of an overview of how and why the forest was such a vital part of everyday life at this time? Yeah, I mean, I I think that people sort of know intuitively but forget how incredibly critical the forest was, and in particular wood, as um, a source of energy and a source of um, building material and fiber for mm-hmm. the way that people existed. Um, you know, I, I've heard it variously compared to, um, well, one of the quotes I use in the book is that it was more vital than bread. And, of course, it was fundamental to even making bread because you couldn't have bread without baking it in an oven that was generally mm-hmm. fueled by wood. But it's also maybe comparable to fossil fuels today in that fossil fuels, uh, you know, power everything, the cars and our homes and the conversation we're having right now, mm-hmm. but also fossil fuels are in, you know, like our fleece clothing and then, uh, you know, the petroleum byproducts that uh, are in a lot of the material that we, that we use. So it's sort of like a combination of plastics and fossil fuels. Wood was everything. It was people's furniture. It was the roof over people's heads. It was... Um, the the walls the wooden walls for ships it was the obviously the main source of energy in France until almost the middle of the 19th century France was very late to using its coal resources in part because those coal resources were quite far from navigable waterways and quite far from the sources of iron ore so that's another component and then uh the other issue is that forests were places where people pastured their animals um it was where they got the the straw and the litter for their um, bedding for their own beds, but also for their um, feeding their animals during the winter. So it's just, I mean, it's almost, 
un- inconceivable how important the forest was mm-hmm. in people's lives. You describe the book Keiko as a history of forest politics in France over a span of nearly two centuries. So what do you mean by forest politics? And how was the history of this politics distinctive in the French context relative to, say, other sites in Europe during the same period? Yeah, so um, forest politics, I, I guess I would say, is the, the kind of push and pull be, um, among various stakeholders who have a material interest and material claim. Mm. on um, the resources, the natural resources of the forest. And the politics is how people work out what they're going to get and who's going to get it. Um, and that extends all the way from the state level on down to, you know, whether or not widows get um, the same allocation of um, firewood in a village. Um, so at every level, people are negotiating and oftentimes um, struggling to stake their claim. Um, and in terms of how forest politics is different in France, well, I mean, in, in many ways, it's, it's not that different from other parts in Europe. I mean, this is a story that you could see in Germany uh, or the German states at the time, um, certainly in England. You can see it in Sweden. A lot of it has to do with the different, you know, uh, ecosystems. So, uh, and even within France itself, I mean, you know, France is so geographically diverse the region I look at, the Franche-Comté, has its own kind of specific forest politics. It's quite different from, say, like, you know, Bretagne or the or Provence, where mm. the kinds of forests you have really change what people can do there. The last several years, Keiko, have really seen a, a proliferation of work uh, in environmental history in, in the French context. So I guess I'm wondering about how you think about that characterization of, of the book as environmental history um, and what you see as your contribution uh, to this growing body of, of literature in, in terms of your methodology and approach. Yeah, so when I first started graduate school, you know, ages ago, um, there, was, there was environmental history, right? But people really thought that environmental history was an American thing. And mm-hmm. it's still, to some extent, that kind of provincialism uh, that I find <laughs> quite tiresome, um, mostly because, uh, you know, at least U.S. Americans don't really seem to have an awareness of other historiographies um, in many cases that directly affect or intersect with their own, how that's mm. changing. Um, but, uh, I mean, certainly in the years since then, yeah, there's been this wonderful efflorescence of um, environmental history based in France. And I think the difference was that in France, there were two really important kind of traditions there's the um, forest history tradition, which is very strong. I mean, there's still the Groupe d'Histoire des Forêts Françaises, which still meets, you know, uh, in France, which is a very kind of forest-oriented history. They really want to know who was working in the forest and how they were doing things. Maybe it's akin to, like, a silvicultural history in the mm. U.S. And the other um, is the um, historical geography tradition, which, you know, is also extremely present in the Annal School. So... Those two strands influenced me a lot, but they didn't necessarily, um, those people in those groups, they don't really understand themselves necessarily as environmental historians. There's been a bit of a resistance among those older generations of historians to think of themselves as environmental historians, maybe even a bit of resentment towards the kind of Anglophone notion. But I think certainly the younger generation of environmental historians uh, and the Anglophone environmental historians and French historians, you know, we've all kind of accepted this concept of, um, you know, the history of the environment. 
The book uh, covers the period from 1669 to 1848, Keiko. So I want to ask you to say a little bit about the chronological span that you cover. And I know we're going to talk about 1669 more <laughs> in a few moments, yeah. but yeah. Um, but I especially wanted to ask you to maybe elaborate a bit on the significance of the long durée approach that, that you take here in, in, in the book. Uh, well, so yeah, 1669 is this, uh, the date of this forest ordinance, uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert's um, famous forest ordinance. And I go to 1848 um, in large part because that's the moment at which, uh, you know, of course, I kind of, the, the way I did the book was to kind of look at these revolutionary moments. Um, mm. And uh, I end with 1848 both because of the revolution and because that's by that time the 1827 Forest Code, which is the successor to the 1669 Forest Ordinance, um, and by that time it's, it's really kind of taken root. And, um, and it leads to its own political ramifications. But in terms of the long durée, I mean, you know, for a book that looks at the revolution, the 1789 revolution, it's a kind of ridiculously long period. <laughs> and I kind of wish that, you know, I wish my advisors in graduate school had told me just to just restrain myself a little bit because it was, <laughs> it was a very difficult, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like, there's lots of people who only work on like 1789 to 1792 or maybe 1792 to 1794. And for me, the kind of hubris of taking on this humongous period from, you know, Louis XIV to, you know, Napoleon III seemed in retrospect to be absurd. But, um, but you know, one of the, the cases I make for that is it's very hard to understand ecological processes, much less community change without looking at that long time span. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, Keiko, about the source materials that you use in the book? I mean, we started with this discussion of how essential and vital uh, wood is to people's everyday lives and the spaces of, of forests. Um, how are you coming at this, I mean, in terms of your source material and the voices uh, that you're, you're listening to or drawing on? Um, yeah, I'm one of these historians who just absolutely loves working in the archives. And, you know, a lot of the book is um, uh, drawn from, for example, the Cahiers de Doléances, you know, these mm -hmm. grievance petitions that were put forward in the spring of 1789 before the Estates General met. And those are really wonderful for their freshness and uh, insights into what communities were concerned about. But, of course, they have their own problems. I mean, they're still, in some ways, crafted by elites, even at that rural level. Um, I also look at the policies themselves, which, and, and the debate surrounding them. So the debates that gave rise to this, uh, to the 1827 force code, you know, they're printed what seem essentially verbatim um, in the Monetary Universal. And so those, you can see how completely contested these kinds of legislative, um, you know, policymaking was. Um, I also look at a lot of uh, police reports, prefectural reports. Um, I'm trying to get at what people were arguing about and what was important to them. And there's also a chapter in the book that's devoted to the kind of enlightenment um, influence, the sort of the high intellectual contribution to shaping the debate over what forests were, who should benefit from them, um, mm -hmm. what conservation is and ought to be. Um, so it's, it's quite a, a lot of different source material, and that maybe shapes each chapter 
with a different result. So, Keiko, while this is certainly a book about France in a, in a broader sense, your focus is on the Franche-Comté region. So why this region? Why did you choose to focus the book to ground the study there? Um, and, and what can you tell us about, about the specificity of, of the region? Uh, the Franche-Comté I chose in large part um, because it was an area and still is where it's um, proportionally extremely heavily forested. Um, you know, compared to the rest of France. Uh, also, it's a place where um, communally owned forests or communally controlled um, access rights remained very strong throughout the revolutionary period and into the 19th century. Uh, and because I was interested in the ways in which communities, you know, maintained and fought for their access rights to forests, um, it seemed like a good place. Initially, I started to work on Lorraine and Alsace, but Alsace in particular poses a lot of different problems um, in terms of, you know, my German was not good enough um, to deal with those records. Uh, mm. There's all the kind of different political histories that go into working in Alsace. So then I kind of moved southwards to Franche-Comté. Um, I mean, it's also, there's a, some irony there, too, because Franche-Comté looks a lot like Vermont, where I grew up. <laughs> and there's a running joke in my family that my father, um, my late father, used to say whenever he went anywhere, it didn't matter if it was like Hawaii or Yosemite, he would say, oh, it looks just like Vermont. <laughs> and, uh, and so there I was. I ended up in a place that indeed looked just like Vermont. And so there's a certain kind of familiarity in working in Franche-Comté as well. That's really interesting. In the, in the first chapter of the book, Keiko, you really, well, the chapter's called The Lay of the Land, and you offer readers the sort of long view of the history of conservation and conflict in, in the region over a period of centuries. And you introduce us to the, what you referred to earlier as the forest stakeholders in this region. So can you tell us about these different groups that you're looking at in this chapter and throughout the book? Yeah, so the, in the Franche-Comté, um, you know, Franche-Comté has, um, it, it comes relatively late to um, the French state. It's conquered um, for the final time in 1678 is when the, the treaty makes it part of France. Um, uh, it's conquered by Louis XIV. And up until that time, it had been under the Habsburg rule, but really kind of uh, a hands-off, absentee style of rule. So the, the um, groups that were in the Franche-Comté, they developed their own way of managing their forest, their own uh, decisions in terms of allocation. Um, and those... So, so when um, one of the interests, actually, of Louis XIV in the region is these really abundant um, hardwood timber forests that um, Jean-Baptiste Colbert in particular sees as useful for the um, uh, reconstruction of the French naval fleet, um, which is absolutely critical to French diplomacy and French um, you know, military strength. So for the French state, it was, you know, the oaks of the Franche-Comté that were the most appealing in terms of the environment, also the salt works and the, the salt mines, um, or not rather the, the, the brine, they don't have mines, they have this kind of salty liquid. So that's one component. Uh, for the, you know, kind of rural users themselves, it was pasturage and timber and uh, firewood that was extremely important. And then over the course of the 18th century in particular, as... Um, um, iron forgers begin to uh, multiply. Industrialists, who are usually seigneurs, usually nobles, 
um, they became really, really interested in, in kind of expanding and, and um, reestablishing their um, seigneurial claims to the forests so that they can use them to produce fuel for their um, iron forges. So there's these sort of three different groups that are all competing with each other. So in this chapter, you really I want to come back to this 1669 ordinance. Um, could you give us an overview of the ordinance? Um, and then, of course, what the rest of the chapter does, which is to look at how the local population in Franche-Comté responded uh, to, to this intervention on the part of the, the state. Yeah, so the 1669 ordinance, um, it's, um, it's essentially an attempt to synthesize and um, really reinforce the state's claims to the the. the force of the entire country, not just the Crown's own um, legal holdings, but also um, uh, communally owned forests and seigneurial uh, forests, those owned by nobles. There have been many, up until that point, you know, there's been several centuries of uh, forest ordinances. The earliest ones have to do with kind of, you know, forest hunting rights, um, but by the you know middle to the end of the 17th century, the the crown is very concerned about um, timber for the navy, and so what really drives the 1669 ordinance is trying to make sure that there's going to be naval timber both um, you know in the present and two three hundred years into the future, uh, and so many of the kind of specific silvicultural dictates have to do with trying to promote and protect hardwoods. They're, they're a bit ham-fisted. They're really based on the eco, um, ecology of Ile-de-France and a little bit farther out. And they don't really work in upland regions where, for example, conifers dominate. There's a moment in your introduction, Keiko, when you point out that part of the project here is to show how, and I'm quoting you, uh, conservation and conflict were mutually constituted during this period. So how does this play out in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book? Yeah, so conservation um, doesn't exist in a way without, you know, there being a fair bit of disagreement over how um, a natural resource should be utilized and exploited. So the the conflict component comes, I guess, in two parts. One is that, you know, there's conflicting interests of of different users, um, different desires, but also in that there's, like, very specific challenges to... um, the kind of state interests. And so conservation arises hand-in-hand uh, hand with the rise of you know, what becomes the modern state, but it, it begins with the absolutism and the centralized authority of, um, you know, the sun king of Louis XIV. So my argument is that the kinds of policies that uh, develop over the course of this long durée, well into the 19th century, is um, both an effort to flex the muscles and interests of the state, but also... Uh, is shaped inevitably by the ways that those interests are resisted. And you certainly see this in the 1827 Forest Code. The 1827 Forest Code is really a kind of bundle of concessions and sort of internal contradictions because even as it's claiming to preserve and, and restore forests, it's also giving away the farm to private landowners. Mm-hmm. So, you know... No kind of environmental policy-making on natural resource policies without its particular political context. In the second chapter of the book, Keiko, you really look at the what you refer to as the intellectual underpinnings of conservation and locate these ideas and, and the policies that are, that are based on them within the context of Enlightenment thought. So who was thinking and writing about forests during this period? 
Um, well, um, Buffon, um, for one, uh, Duena de Monceau, who is the author of many, many long, um, very detailed and tedious silvicultural tracts, um, uh, Réamour, some of the names that we associate most with natural history and mm-hmm. um, sort of the development of scientific uh, research methods um, in France in the 18th century. Um, but also more humble people um, who were members of these um, provincial academies, like the Académie de Besançon, so forth. They, they all kind of weigh in on what they see as the forest problem and mm. how to develop responses that are going to protect France's forests. Again, there's always this sense of the future, very um, urgent concern about both the present and the future supply of wood for France. In the, in the case of Buffon, he, he has some wacky notions about, um, you know, that it's actually good to clear the forest because you need to warm up on the land and people need to be warmer. And I mean, quite ironically, he's more correct than he realizes with climate change. That yes, if you deforest the planet, it does warm up, but not as intended. There's also the physiocrats, um, you know, the, the mm-hmm. um, economists who were not actually that interested in protecting the forest. Their their main um, desire was to expand agricultural production and thereby increase the population of France, with their, which would then increase um, France's wealth. So the physiocrats um, push through a lot of these clearing proposals that lead to deforestation in other parts, not in the Franche-Comté, but in other parts of France. The chapter looks at this at a tension between uh, this discourse of environmental conservation that emerges in this period and and the practices of the forest uh, during this this same period. So what were the main features and consequences of this tension? Yeah, so, I mean, at the local level, people are, they've already worked out their own ways of um, managing the forest in ways that make sense for their own needs. That has to do with um, community-based allocation of firewood, of timber based on, you know, the, the size of your holdings. And these all work as long as they're not challenged by external demands. But what happens is, you know, once the, um, the 1669 ordinance is implemented, and in Franche-Comté it comes quite late, it's, you know, begins in the 1720s and it continues in some places into the 1760s, uh, once those other interests are introduced and those kinds of concepts of conservation, again, in large part for naval timber protection, then um, you have, that's where the tension arises. And also at the same time, you've got the sort of growing industrial interest in um, forest as a factory, uh, you know, a kind of source of um, firewood or fueling um, iron forges. The middle chapters of the book, Keiko, are really focused on a on, on well, crises, the crises of the revolution, but also this forest crisis uh, that you talk about on the eve of the revolution. So what was the nature of the crisis over woodland resources at this time? Well, the population in France um, grows immensely, especially in the second half of the 18th century, and particularly in the Northeast. So there's this real demographic, I'm not sure I would say boom, but it may have felt like a boom at the time. Uh, so there's more people needing more out of the forest. Then there's um, the state pressures on the forest. Then, as they say, there's the industrial pressures. Uh, so the price of firewood um, skyrockets. Uh, cities are growing, and they are essentially siphoning off a lot of firewood 
um, from rural communities. And there's also these um, physiocratic uh, decrees to increase clearing. So at the same time that demand for firewood and timber is growing, you've also got um, less of it because you've got um, expanded arable uh, cultivation. So that creates uh, a real problem. Um, it's localized. Uh, it's not, you know, throughout France. But it was certainly perceived to be this moment where people felt like they were running out of fuel. And that's in part what leads to all of these sort of uh, Enlightenment-related um, pamphlets and manifestos about how to protect the forest. You mentioned the Cahiers de Doléances earlier, and uh, so I'm just wondering, in this period right before the revolution, what, what role did forest-related concerns play for Franche-Comté, but also for other parts of France? Yeah, the forest comes up immensely in um, the Cahiers de Doléances, particularly Franche-Comté, um, but uh, throughout France you see it mentioned. I mean, it, again, it depends region by region, because some places use the template more than others, but... Communities that don't use a, um, a template or who deviate from the kind of regional template of the Cahiers de Doléances, they tend to add on a tremendous amount of complaints about specifically the intervention of the 1669 ordinance, how they don't like the officers of the OA4A, the state forest organization, how um, they don't have enough firewood, how their firewood is being taken by the salt works, and then all they get back is crappy, lousy, you know, sediment-filled salt that, you know, makes their animals die. So there's really very sort of nitty-gritty material concerns that relate to forests. And um, in other places, they complain specifically that the rights that they had once had to the forest have been systematically um, under assault by both their local seigneur and the state. Uh, so it, it's definitely present. And, I, and again, I found that really fascinating. What I love about the Cahiers de Doléances is that they um, they are so unrestrained. You know, I, I remember talking to uh, an economic historian uh, at Yale and sort of wondering about why in regions where it seemed like the firewood was abundant, people were still complaining. And he said, well, you know, people just like to bitch. Hmm. And, and in some ways, you, you do see that here. Like, the, you know, the great mistake of the Cahiers de Doléances was in raising people's expectations, right? That that once um, people had been asked, what are they concerned about? Well, they are going to darn well tell you. And um, so that comes through loud and clear in the materials. You move in your discussion of the revolution from this regional context to, to thinking about the, the national context and what you characterize as a, as a failure of reform during the period from 1789 until about 1799. So why and how did French revolutionaries fail in their attempts to establish a, a new comprehensive forest code? So, the, you know, that, that period is, a, um, I think for any historian, it's a bit of a slog in terms of looking at policymaking because there's so much shifting so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it just in terms of who's in power, and you know, you introduce the element of the revolutionary tribunals and the terror, um, and there's a lot going on. There's a tremendous amount going on. That's why you know maybe it would have been better just to work on 1792 to 1793. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the that you can see, despite all of the political upheaval and the uncertainty, that there is a kind of consistent desire to put into place. Uh, a kind of more systematic, centralized um, forest uh, policy that will 
essentially bring the 1669 ordinance up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and you know, there are all these committees uh, that try again and again, but as they get unseated, as a new regime comes in, um, they kind of languish. So it really actually isn't until you get that, you know, kind of re-centralization uh, of authority with Napoleon that um, there's enough stability, if you want to call it that, to put into place legislation. But the kind of legislation that is enacted from 1801 or so forward really does build on the findings of these agricultural committees uh, during the revolution. So what was the impact of the, f- the failure that you talk about on the specific region of Franche-Comté? And, and throughout France, too. Yeah, the impact is that there's a kind of free-for-all. And I think there's a free-for-all in many, many ways in that, in that you know, decade-long period of upheaval, that uh, the sort of um, collective management that had operated at the community level breaks down, um, that the state oversight um, in, in many cases vanishes, um, seigneurial interests are replaced by um, bourgeois interests, and um, it's at that moment that you might argue that, you know, Garrett Hardin's, the ecologist Garrett Hardin's theory about the tragedy of the commons is actually visible because it's when there is no kind of uh, cooperation in the management of the commons that everyone does start to take for themselves. And so France does suffer an enormous period of deforestation in that, in that decade-long span um, to the end of the 18th century. Such that, you know, that's the moment at which France's forest cover is the lowest that it's ever, you know, been in the in the early modern and modern period. Um, I, you know, and since the beginning of the 19th century, France's forests have um, grown and grown and grown. But yeah, I mean, the forests, there's deforestation at altitude, there's deforestation in, um, in the lowlands, and there's just complete chaos and upheaval in the ways people are cutting down trees or hacking down trees or, you know, barking trees. So there's, there's a lot of um, lack of management. So you're looking, Keiko, at how this revolutionary period affected uh, policies and ideas with respect to the forests. Does looking at forests change or our way of thinking about the revolutionary period? I mean, would you see your book as an intervention in French revolutionary historiography or any of those kinds of major debates about the course of the revolution and its politics? Yeah, I would certainly hope so. I mean, one of the things that is um, that is both interesting and kind of uh, um, disappointing to see is the way in which as um, environmental historical research in France has grown. It's also failed to be integrated more fully into the sort of mainstream historiography mm-hmm. of, of revolutionary history. Um, I don't think that was always the case. I mean, you look at the work, for example, of, oh, I don't know, uh, Georges Roudet or certainly the, the Annal scholars, mm-hmm. you know, Dubis working in an earlier period, but um, Lucien Febvre, who worked on the Franche-Comté, people who understand that you can't understand a political uh, shift without the understanding of the social and economic and, and uh, environmental conditions that feed into those po- political um, disruptions. But Peter McPhee, I think, is the one who has done this most successfully um, in terms of integrating um, environmental concerns into uh, an understanding of the sort of political upheavals of the revolution. But, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think I was hoping and 
Um, I'm not sure I've succeeded. I think I was hoping in really making um, a, a wider claim for understanding the ways that environmental concerns are constant in our political reactions. And, and certainly today, I mean, the sort of the, the importance in that climate change plays, um, certainly in you know, U.S. American debates, even in terms of climate change denial, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a constant and it's, a, it's present. So people might think that the environment is some sort of like context or backdrop, but in fact it's front and center because without those natural resources, we can't survive. You go on in the book, Keiko, to talk about the 1827 Forest Code. So why why did it take until 1827 for a comprehensive <laughs> Forest Code, New Forest Code, and and what was why was what was significant and different about this this new code? Yeah, uh, it, it does take forever um, to get to the point. Uh, the, you know, the under Napoleon, there is uh, legislation that essentially recapitulates and confirms much of the both the 1669 ordinance and um, some of the committee findings and um, proposals of the revolutionary period. But the 1827 Forest Code reflects uh, essentially the rise of um, proprietary individualism um, in France following the revolution, the, the importance of um, private land ownership and their refusal to be subject to the state's claims on their own resources that you see in the 1669 ordinance. Why does it take until 1827? It, the d- debates drag on and on and on, um, you know, and it, it's, it's partly an issue of stability, I would argue, um, until you get to a, a politically stable moment that it becomes issued. Uh, it's also a response to the, may, maybe it's just that, you know, people don't get around to it, but I'm trying, trying to remember myself. I remember thinking, God, like, could we just get to the to the sports code earlier, right, when I was doing the research? Um, I think, too, that, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in my, my new project is to understand what happens in those, what I think of as sort of lost years um, between, say, 1814 and uh, the 1830s. So what were the implications of the, the new code for customary usage and communal property, whose interests were served by this new code. And then I guess I'm wondering about how it was enforced and what the forms of opposition were, uh, particularly in Franche-Comté. In Oifore, um, which is the forest um, administration in France, it becomes much more um, capable and professionalized. Um, starting in the first 10 years or so of the 19th century, um, there is an emphasis on a more militarized um, OFLA. Hmm. In fact, um, military veterans are given um, preference in all um, all ranks of OFLA um, positions. Uh, so there's a, a kind of efficiency, um, a military efficiency introduced into the OFLA. And uh, then there's a new school of um, forestry, which is opened um, in Nancy in 1826, if I remember correctly. So there's also kind of uh, more improved civil cultural management training for um, all officers. And um, what the 1827 Forest Code does is give much more free license to private landowners. They're, they're, 
the intervention of the state is effectively removed with some uh, minor adjustments. But uh, in terms of communities, they have to go out now and prove all of their use claims that date back, in some cases, 300, 400 years. And so you have this moment at which all of these rural communities all over France are frantically riffling through you know, uh, their archives, trying to find documents that demonstrate the moment at which they were given um, either their own forest properties, their own community um, properties, or in which they were given use rights in what, what by then had become state holdings. And these, you know, many communities can't demonstrate it, um, and they lose their rights. And then you see these uh, court cases drag on and on and on into the 1860s and into the 1870s, in which they're still trying to say, no, 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 you know, in the 13th century, our seigneur gave us um, rights of access to this tract of land. So... Um, the state is really trying to clamp down on this garage, the the usage of communities' um, claims to get a firewood, to get timber, to graze their animals, and so on and so forth, because they want the forests to be places of timber production and fuelwood production, and all of these other demands um, they consider to be harmful to the forests. You make the point, Keiko, towards the end of the book and at other points throughout that peasant resistance. Uh, when it came to forests, produced greater gains than we may have thought previously. So, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that the the story of you know peasant um, rebellions, uprisings, um, counter revolutions, if you will, uh, they've been looked at as kind of rearguard actions, some um, you know failures, maybe romantic failures, but. Um, in fact, those kinds of pressures, which in Franche-Comté are, are quite constant uh, from the beginning of the 17th century forward, um, excuse me, this, uh, 18th century forward, when the 1669 ordinance is introduced, well into the 19th century, you know, there's really active armed resistance to the interventions of the French state. Um, and when that happens, they actually get concessions or the state just pulls back for a while and they get time, um, they get a reprieve. So in the case of Franche-Comté, there are real material gains from communities pushing, um, initially they're pushing through you know, armed rebellion, then they're pushing through you know, occasional murders and attacks on guards, and then they're pushing through these court cases mm-hmm. um, into the 19th century where ultimately what they get is what's called cantonment. And cantonment is taking... Um, a portion of the forest and, and giving it to the community for its own possession, for its own control. So the way the state gets rid of um, use right claims is to actually give people uh, a little chunk of land, a little chunk of forest. It's it's not really adequate. Um, and if if it hadn't been for industrialization, you know, coal production and a shift of fossil fuels in the 19th century, it would have been wholly inadequate and, and, and a disaster. But that's another story. <laughs> I'm just wondering, Keiko, about the timeline and regime changes and political forms throughout the period that you cover in the book. I mean, how much does it matter that France is at one moment a monarchy, a republic, uh, in a period of intense revolution, uh, an empire? These types of regime changes and political changes, do they have specific impacts on policy and ideas with respect to the forest? 
I think certainly um, in the first half of the period, um, when you see this sh- this tremendous kind of uh, intellectual and ideological shift from the concept of the king as one's father, as one's caretaker, where people are specifically addressing the king in their cahier de doléances, ex- hoping that he will resolve their problems, to the you know the, what's widely understood as this immense awakening of, of um, political. Uh, understanding in the revolution where people feel like, actually, no, they can make these decisions for themselves. And I think that plays out very, very strongly in the ways that policies are resisted or negotiated, reshaped in the revolutionary period um, at the at the local level. I, I, I sort of know less, I think, about what happens in the Restoration. Um, but you get this revival of hope um, and claims um, in 1848, where people feel like the sort of unfinished business of the revolution can finally be achieved with regard to Mm -hmm. these customary rights and um, communal claims. The epilogue of the book, Keiko, looks at legacies of the period that is the focus of the book, and um, I'm just wondering what you can tell us about how things play out in the second half of the 19th century uh, in a kind of broad sense. Well, in a way, the the problem, the forest problem that's so present in the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century resolves itself, but in ways that certainly, you know, Jean-Baptiste Colbert could never have anticipated, which is that you have the introduction of a totally different fuel, right? The, the shift to reliance on fossil fuels essentially, you know, ends the, the intensity of the conflict, and maybe it provides like an, an easy out that people didn't anticipate. But so that's one of the things that happens is, uh, you know, you have this immense rural migration going on in the first half of the 19th century where people, the population pressures are too much. People can't make a go of it anymore. They all moved, not all, but many moved to the cities. So there's depopulation in these rural communities of Franche-Comté. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the 1850s and 60s, you've got this shift over to coal. Um, away from charcoal, away from firewood. So that's one of the ways in which the forest question ceases to be a question anymore. The, the, the other way is that, you know, the, the policies of the 19th century, the, the importance of being able to um, legislate at the community level, that that's, I think, new politics emerge in France. So that's a kind of clumsy answer for that question, but there you go. No, not at all. Um the book is really focused on the metropolitan context, but you do point to some of the broader implications for France's empire and the epilogue and to the impact of French ideas and policies elsewhere, um, the U.S. in particular, I'm thinking of. So could you say a little bit about that? Well, the, the, the notion that there should be this state centralized conservation is one that France um, exports. And other people have spoken about it, you know, quite well, Diana Davis, for example, um, uh, Andrea Williams, too, talking about um, the, the you know, French colonial context. Mm-hmm. Those ideas about, um, you know, uh, the natural resources being for the purposes of the state and, and trying to essentially keep away people's um, community-based interests, that creates problems wherever they're introduced. Um, in the in the American context, I think the main link you see there is Gifford Pinchot, who is the father of um, modern forestry, of the National Forest Service um, in the U.S., and he goes initially to the um, French National Forestry School in Nancy for his training, I think largely because he didn't speak German that well, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because by that time, 
by the 18, uh, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, the Germans have begun to really surpass the French in terms of actual silk cultural management principles. Mm. Um, but uh, the the notion that a state should see to the, the future well-being of its citizens through large conservation policies is one that Gifford Pinchot and together with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, really puts into action and it certainly remained in place. So that the kind of state-centralized conservation then becomes um, one that shifts across the Atlantic. Some of the arguments that you make in the book, Keiko, about uh, the ways that the state uh, supports private and commercial interests and how those interests end up trumping conservation, and also, uh, you know, how we might need to need or want to rethink uh, the relationship between local and community-based arrangements and uh, environmental degradation. Some of these arguments have important implications for how we think about uh, these issues, environmental and other concerns in the, in the present. So could you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I'm, a, I'm a real believer in community-based activism. Mm-hmm. And the goal I was trying to achieve, I think, in this book was to show that when communities establish a common interest and work together cooperatively, they can protect um you know, what's most important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think as, well, you know, with age and time, my, my sort of sense of opposition to the state um, as an um, anonymous force has mellowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, sadly, that happens to us all. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I think that the, the notion that all stakeholders need to be at the table in order to come up with um, policies that work, um, you know, not just work for individual humans, but actually work for the sustainability of uh, a a particular ecosystem or even the planet. I mean, that that conviction remains very strong. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was, you know, deeply influenced by the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who, um, you know, works on uh, common pool resource theory, on um, political choice theory, um, and on other others of the who were part of the um, program in agrarian studies at Yale, who were you know talking much more about twentieth um, century concerns than about eighteenth and nineteenth century concerns. So, my hope is that um, the book could kind of offer a sort of hopeful way of understanding um, the ways that both resistance and collaboration can make a difference in, in preserving a resource, a natural resource. Uh, I think in France what's happened, and certainly in Franche-Comté, is that, uh, and I think I say this in the epilogue, that, you know, it's ironic that um, these old um, customary practices, which were so demonized in the 18th and 19th century, particularly um, the grazing of goats and sheep in the forest, those have been brought back and kind of hailed as these, you know, um, new interventions for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not just, um, uh, you know, maintaining open understories without the intervention of fossil fuel-based tools, but also that there's a, a real understanding that maybe there was uh, excessive grazing, maybe there was excessive deforestation, but those were also really important to creating certain kinds of um, habitats for birds and bees and butterflies and with the loss of those um, rural practices, you lose entire species. Um, so there's a whole way in which 
uh, customer usage has been uh, re-legitimated and restored um, in France. And I and I've actually I just saw it recently in the UK as well. You can see all these darling-looking grazing goats and sheep all over the place doing the work of of mowing mm-hmm. and in the process creating burden um, butterfly habitat. So I just got one more question for you, Keiko, which is what are you working on now? You mentioned it, your latest work uh, a little while ago. Could you tell us a little bit more about where your research has taken you? So the, the new project, um, which I'm quite excited about, um, in part because it focuses on one event uh, in one place on one day rather than the long journey. To... On one day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's um. It's the story of a murder, and I know like historians seem to like to t- turn in their second or third books to murder stories, and I probably am no exception. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's the story of a double murder of um, two forest guards in Franche-Comté in the Forêt de Chaux in 1813. And um, the case, I'm hoping, will allow me to get at a lot of questions that I wasn't able to unpack in this much longer, long-durée project of the mm-hmm. first book. Um, you know, one of the questions I'm interested in is uh, what was the real relationship between, you know, representatives of the state and individuals in communities? And who were these individuals? Um, you know, I have this kind of romantic notion in the first book that that communities were uh, a, a kind of monolithic unit, which, of course, isn't true at all. And you can really see that in these cases of rupture when certain individuals decide that, they're going to do something outlandishly brutal. In this case, beat to death two forest guards who are going about their business um, on the edge of the forest. Uh, and the case, um, which I discovered when I was doing the edits for the first book, uh, the case I have the entire judicial records for, and hmm. it's absolutely fascinating for the insight it gives into both the everyday life of the village, um, into the role of of gender relations and how, um, you know, how, like, forest um, grievances were pursued or um, forest uh, infractions were acted on. Because a lot of the time it's women who are going into the forest and, and sort of, uh, well, in the eyes of the OFA, stealing wood. Um, so there's, there's this woman who's essentially her, her nickname translates to Big Mama. And <laughs> Big, Big Mama gets arrested again and again and again for uh, stealing wood by these forest guards. And eventually, two of the people convicted for the murder of the forest guards are her sons. Um, so there's just a lot going on. It's a very personal story. It will also let me look at this period um, in which um, the Napoleonic Empire is um, governing um, forest policy. Uh and I think also the other thing that's happened is, you know, with time, my, I, it's sort of sad, but, you know, my faith in the cohesiveness and ability of communities to function has become a bit more skeptical. Mm. Um, and so I want to look at when does it break down? And in this particular story, there's a lot of backstabbing, literal and figurative. There's a lot of um, lying and secrets. And I, you know, I, I want to see how those kinds of behaviors, which are very much personal, um, how they actually relate to the larger political and military context mm-hmm. of the um, Napoleonic period. Well, Keiko, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and for, for writing the book. Oh, well, thank you so much for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think taking an interest. I really appreciate it.